Well, please remain standing and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, and um, this afternoon I want to read the whole of the passage, what we looked at last week, as well as our focus this week. So we will be reading verses 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, and the Word of God says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not, not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would be with us now through the preaching of your word. Would you draw near to us by your Spirit Give us minds that are attentive, minds that are focused and willing to be ministered to by your Spirit. Oh, would you help us to understand, to comprehend this great transformation that has taken place by the work of Christ on the cross. That we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Oh, that great transformation. And Lord, I pray that you would Allow us to examine ourselves and to uh, discern whether our deeds are consistent with that transformation. Oh, would you be glorified this afternoon? Be with us, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our look, and I suppose technically uh, finishing our consideration of this passage here this afternoon. Last week, as I mentioned, we considered verses 3 through 7, which address the behavior that Christians are to abstain from. And if you recall, the six characteristics that Paul listed had to do with the immorality of those outside the church, both in their conduct and in their speech. It is this immoral conduct and speech that is not to find its way into the church. What we saw was that Paul used the negative aspect, negative in the sense uh, that do not do this, or specifically, these things shouldn't be named among you. But in addition to just simply saying, don't do this, he provided warnings, warnings as to why the body of Christ should abstain from such deeds, namely that those who are characterized by these deeds have no inheritance in the kingdom, and in fact, they face the wrath of God. 
However, Paul doesn't only use the negative and the warnings as a prodding tool to keep them from sin. While the negative instruction combined with these warnings certainly can be a strong motivator and beneficial to use. If you remember in that sermon, we even highlighted the fact that Peter used this very thing as a motivation as well. While those things are good to be used, we need the positive as well, and this is what Paul turns to. In other words, Paul reminds them of who they truly are, not in themselves, of course, but in Christ, in the Lord. And he does so by the imagery of light and darkness. And it is this contrast between light and darkness, between what we once were and what we now are, that highlights why these deeds should not be named among us, why these deeds should not be spoken of, and rather why these deeds should be exposed. It is because we are now light. And so it is this aspect of the Christian now being light in the Lord that will be the focus of this sermon. In fact, this, this, the prominence of, of light is what I use to form the outline, and it will be as follows. Verses 8 through 10, we're going to see the Christian's luminous transformation. Verses 11 through 13, we're going to look at the Christian's luminous deeds. And finally, in verse 14, we're going to look at the Christian's luminous beginning. So first, the Christian's luminous transformation. This is what we read. Paul says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It is here that Paul, having given the negative reasons to why they should not be partakers with the sons of disobedience, now turns to the positive. In other words, he turns to the reality of what they are in the Lord. And he does so by the wants now construct. He says you were formerly darkness or you were once darkness. And then notice, but now you are light. Thus bringing the contrast between light and darkness to the foreground. It is this contrast between light and darkness that provides us with powerful imagery. In scripture, we see light associated with light. Uh, excuse me, light associated with life and with salvation and with communion with God, while on the other hand, darkness is associated with sin, with death, with judgment. It is associated with separation from God. But in addition to this, here in our passage, we see a few more things as it relates to light and darkness. Light transforms, light exposes, light reveals. Light has fruit, while darkness keeps hidden. It keeps secret. Darkness conceals, and it has no fruit. Its deeds are unfruitful. That's even what Paul says, the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And so Paul reminds them of a fundamental change that has taken place in them. There has been a transformation such that who they once were or formerly were is not who they now are. What he says is they were formerly darkness, and we too were formerly darkness. Flip back, if you would, to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It is here that we see a description of this darkness, of this former nature that was once ours. This is a very well-known passage. We all know this passage. 
But don't let it escape your notice of what we were in ourselves. This is what we read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, that was our condition. It was to this rule, to this order, this lifestyle, these unfruitful deeds of darkness that we once belonged. It was these things that characterized us. And the fact that we were characterized by these things highlights that it wasn't just a realm of darkness that we were in, that we lived in or that we were surrounded by darkness, but we actually were darkness. Paul doesn't say that they were formerly in darkness, but that they were darkness, and such were we. It is these unfruitful deeds that we participated in and even desired to do. Why? Well, because we were enslaved to this darkness. We were this darkness. And it is this past tense aspect that is so key, it is so essential. Why? Well, because every true, every genuine believer must have a former manner of life. The believer must be able to speak of these things as past tense. These things must no longer characterize us. Therefore, the question you have to ask yourself is, do these things characterize me? Do these things still define who I am? We must be continually examining ourselves. But as we do so, we must also remember, it is not, have I ever sinned in such a way? But am I characterized by these things? Am I still living in these things? And it is good for us to allow ourselves to ponder what we once were. To let the reality of what we once were sink, sink in. Because it makes this next statement that much more glorious. This is what he says. But, you, but now you are light in the Lord. But now... Here is the contrast in the present reality. The past tense was used, speaking of who we formerly were, but now the present tense is used. But now you are light in the Lord. It is here that we are confronted with the reality of the transformation that has taken place. We have been transferred and we have been transformed from darkness to light. This categorical shift or this transferring is exactly what we see in Colossians 1.13. Just listen to what we read there. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There certainly was a realm transfer, domain of darkness to kingdom. There's a kingdom transfer. We were transferred from the domain or the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, which is the kingdom of light because he is the light. But remember, we didn't just live in darkness. We were darkness. And so not only is there a kingdom transfer, but there has been a character transfer as well. We went from being darkness to now being light. 
So certainly a realm transfer, but also a character transfer in who we now are. This is important. It's because darkness cannot dwell in light. So it's not just a darkness gets transferred to, you know, we're still darkness and we get transferred to a new realm. No, no, no. It is a complete transformation both of realm and individual. What characterizes you? Therefore, the members of the kingdom of light must be light. And such were these Ephesian believers, and such are we. We are light in the Lord. And so certainly pictured here is our conversion. Paul is pointing them to their conversion, that luminous transformation in which they went from being darkness to being light. And conversion implies complete change, does it not? Converted from one thing to another thing. In this case, from darkness to light. But notice, this luminous transformation didn't take place because of their own doing. It is not something that they brought about or they manufactured themselves. No, this transformation took place in the Lord. He is the source of light. He is the cause of the transformation. If left to ourselves, we remain darkness. And so it is that we are light in the Lord. Where we are positionally matters. As a matter of fact, this is the distinguishing factor of whether you are personally light or darkness. It's your position. Are you in the Lord, meaning have you repented of your sin and have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Or are you in the world and thus outside of the Lord? Light and darkness, you see, cannot dwell together. You're in either one or the other. We've seen this either-or picture before, in Adam or in Christ, in darkness or in light, in the Lord or outside of the Lord, but never both, never both. But notice what Paul says next. He says that this has consequences. We're now to walk as children of light. Here again, the imperative, this is a command, Walk as children of light is a command. And so there's this imperative, but notice the indicative, uh, the indicative, or, or, the, or the, yeah, the indicative, the things that should be uh, follow on. Because you have been converted or transformed, because you are light, here is what should happen. Walk as children of light. And this logically follows. You have been transformed, and therefore there must be a change in your deeds, a change in how you now live. Our lives must be radically different than how they previously were. Previously, we were participants in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. No, those deeds are diametrically opposed to what we now are as light, and thus those deeds should not be named among us. Rather than being characterized by darkness, right, we are to be characterized by light. We are to shine forth light, and we are to bear the fruit of light. And exactly how this is done, this walking as children of light, Paul explains with his parenthetical statement in verse 9. Look there with me. He says, For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, in righteousness, in truth. 
He lists three Christian graces, goodness, righteousness, and truth. These qualities obviously stand in stark contrast to the unfruitful deeds of darkness. They are completely opposite of what we looked at last week. And it is these broad categories, they are broad. They are, it's just goodness, righteousness, and truth. There's not a lot of specificity here. But these broad category, it is these broad categories that are to characterize the totality of the Christian life. And I want to quickly define these just so we understand what is in view. First, goodness. Goodness carries the idea of kindness and showing benevolence to others. Even in practical ways, that really, I mean, that's what matters is getting down to the brass tacks. It's like being good, exhibiting goodness. Very practical. It is to do that which benefits others. Righteousness. There are obviously different concepts behind righteousness depending upon how it is used or even, I mean, primarily depending upon the context in which we're dealing with. And here in this context, it is not our right standing before God or Christ's imputed righteousness that is in view. Rather, it is the righteousness that refers to upright behavior, proper conduct. It is living as we ought to truly live. It is really a life of obedience. In truth, it is truth as opposed to a lie or as opposed to falsehood. Therefore, what is in view is truth as it relates to genuineness. The thing is what it is or what it claims to be. Make sense? These are not just three random characteristics that are listed. Rather, it is these three characteristics, and listen, not only these three, but these three that are listed here that are used in the the scriptures to describe the very character of God. For example, now, I want to list off a handful of passages. Definitely feel free to write them down. You don't have to flip there and try to try to follow along, but just write them down and then go back and look at them. Here's what we read. Exodus 34, 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Deuteronomy 32, 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Shall the Lord of the earth not do what is right? That, that comes to mind. Psalm 145, 7. They shall, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully at your righteousness. Psalm 145, 17. Actually, I mean, I mean, you could literally go read the whole of Psalm 145. I picked a couple. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. And so we see the description of the very character of God And in addition to these, we see a reference to righteousness and truth in Ephesians 4.24. It is here that Paul is describing the new self. And listen to how it's described. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God 
has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new self, the new man, is created in the likeness of God, which consists of righteousness and holiness of the truth. It is these graces that are to characterize the new man. It's after the likeness of God. But we can also think of the life of Christ. Christ manifested goodness. He was benevolent and consistently demonstrated goodness to those around him. Think of all the times in which he is walking and healing and addressing the people that are surrounding him. Many times after preaching, and he's exhausted, and nothing but goodness flows from him. How many times do we use excuses for why we're not going to do a particular thing or act a particular way because we're tired? Christ didn't do that. He gave us the supreme example of how we ought to walk. He was the consummate righteous one. He lived a righteous life through and through. He fulfilled all righteousness. And he is the truth. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is who he said he was. He is the son of God. And so he was full of truth. He manifested truth. He was genuinely who he said he was. And so clearly Christ manifested each of these three characteristics in the fullest measure. Now follow along here, Ephesians 5, 1, and 2. Look there with me if you would. This is what we read in that passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as, remember, if you, remember when I did my, the, the Sunday school on the imitation and all these different ideas here of imitating Christ, this just as language implies imitation. Just as he was... He, he sacrificially gave himself, so should we. That's what we even looked at last week. This offset between walking in the self-indulgent behavior of the flesh and walking self-sacrificially or sacrificially in this life. So just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, there is a theme of imitation present Like I said last week, this is what we considered. Don't walk in self-indulgent, immoral behavior. Instead, give yourself. That's how we're to live. And here we continue this theme of imitation. You see, what is present here in the listing of these three characteristics is the imitation of God and Christ. The imitation of God's character as he has revealed himself and the imitation of Christ's example and who he, or as he lived. And really, as we do that, As we do that, as we bear this fruit of light, what is happening is we are manifesting God to the world around us. That's why it is so essential that we cannot participate in the deeds of darkness. We must imitate the one who called us. Previously, we imitated our old master and did the deeds of darkness. But now as light, we must imitate the one who came into the world as the light. Therefore, these are not optional for us. If you are light, you must bear fruit consistent with the light. And so this walking as children of the light consists of bearing the fruit of light. And as Paul says next, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. This is now the aim of the Christian. This is the goal of our life, doing what is pleasing to the Lord living in a manner that is pleasing to him. 
And really, this kind of even goes back to what I looked at last week in Ephesians 4.1, living in a manner worthy of our calling. These things all tie together. The Word of God is glorious. Let's, you know, amazing. Man could not have written this. Now, the verb that is used here for the phrase, trying to learn, or other versions may say, like ESV, I think, says this, try to discern, would literally mean to prove or to put to the test. In the Greek, it's dakamadzo. Now, you may recall, I dealt with this in a Sunday school, and I think the sermon on Romans 12 too, because we see this same word there. It involves a critical examination, the BDAG says, of something, of, of, of something to determine its genuineness, to put it to the test. And so I want to look at these verses. Um, there's a couple verses where we see this in particular. First, Philippians 1, 10. This is what Paul says there. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may, and here's going to be our word, approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Here we find our word in that phrase, approve the things that are excellent. The idea here is not a discerning between good and evil. We know that as Christians, what is good, what is evil. The approving of things that are excellent has to do with discerning what is good and what is best. What is best, and maybe like if you wanted to even heighten it, like what is excellent. And so if you apply that even in this verse, or even in like Romans 12 too, right? He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Again, he tells us it's good. So it's not a distinguishing between what is good. It's identifying the will of God, discerning the will of God, and seeking to put it into practice, to do it, and to do that which best pleases him. Best pleases him. We're not looking to skate by as Christians and do the bare minimum. We should be, in light of what we even sung about and what he has done for us at the cross, be seeking to do what is best, what best pleases him. That should be our aim. And unfortunately, much of Christianity today is just like, okay, like how close can I get to the line of sin? Or how, what, it's just a list of I can't do this. That should not be our view. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It's like, why would we participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness? I don't know where I am on my notes, but this is what matters. We, as a Christian, are never to kick things into neutral, as it were, or to coast by. It is never mindlessly going through our day, and that's easy to do. We just kind of go through our routine. We have our things kind of set up. Rather, we should be engaged, we should be alert, and continually exercising judgment in accordance with what Scripture teaches us into the various circumstances that we find ourselves in, in order to make decisions that have as their end goal what is best pleasing to the Lord. That's the practical aspect of the day-to-day. -day. You encounter all different types of scenarios, and all along you're not just like, oh, I'm just going through this. No, 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 you are engaged, you are alert, and you are ready to pursue the option that best pleases him. That's what's in view. That's how we ought to walk. This is how we should live. And so it logically follows that since we have undergone this luminous transformation, our deeds will be luminous as well. 
Our deeds, in other words, will be light. And this leads us to our second point, the Christian's luminous deeds. Paul says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done. It's like, don't only not say them, don't even talk about what they're doing. Naturally, being children of light not only includes the bearing of fruit, but the abstaining from the unfruitful deeds of darkness. As I said, there cannot be a dual citizenship taking place here. You cannot be a citizen of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light at the same time. And so, because of their conversion, because of their reality as light, Paul tells them, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. This is essentially what we looked at last week. But he takes it a step further here. It's not just don't participate. What is it? It's expose them. Expose them. And this makes sense because this is what light does. It exposes. This emphasizes the need to bear the fruit of light. Why? Because it is by this fruit of light that our light shines forth and exposes the darkness around us. And this is also why there can just be no kicking it into neutral and just kind of, you know, coasting down the river like with no like intent. We need to be actively bearing the fruit of light in order to expose the deeds of darkness. Now the question, of course, centers on what exactly should be exposed? (laughs) In other words, who or what is the them that Paul references, that he refers to? He says, expose them. Is it the individuals, i.e. the sons of darkness, or is it the unfruitful deeds of darkness? Essentially, are we, are we to expose the individuals or the deeds? That's what's in view here. And based on the fact that the whole focus thus far has been on fruit or deeds, even last week, and the object of the verb here is the unfruitful deeds as opposed to the sons of disobedience mentioned earlier, the them refers to the unfruitful deeds of darkness, not the individuals. So what we ultimately have here is deeds exposing deeds. Our deeds of light expose their deeds of darkness. And what we must realize when we think of, or when we, when we think of deeds of light, we must understand that it includes both physical actions and speech. Much in the same way when we looked at verses 3 and 4, Paul addressed both physical deeds and speech. So in the same way, these deeds of light are how we are actually conducting ourselves and what we are saying. And so ultimately, deeds have reference to the totality of the individual, essentially everything that we do. And so it follows that the way we live in both speech and conduct, these deeds of light, which are summarized by goodness, righteousness, and truth, will expose the deeds of darkness. Now, there's a distinction that has to be made as to when we speak of our words being included, or what is behind this exposing. And I want to deal with this very delicately because I don't want to muddy the waters, but what is in view is not verbal rebuke of people. There are many ways in which we can 
uh, be light in the world. And sometimes, let me be very clear, sometimes it does involve a straight, direct, verbal rebuke. It happens when we preach the gospel, for example. We are bringing before the world around us the reality of their condition and what Christ has done. But in this passage, in this context, the primary emphasis is on deeds of light exposing deeds of darkness. There is a time and place where there is verbal rebuke that's needed. This does not go against what the rest of Scripture says and our need to uh, preach the gospel and so on and so forth. That would put Scripture at odds with each other, and we know that doesn't happen. But what the focus is, is our conduct, our speech being light on the day-to-day, on the day-to-day. You see, it's in our weekly, daily, moment-by-moment interaction. We're not going out in the world like being everybody's Holy Spirit and verbally rebuking like everything that they're doing. That's not what's in view. He's talking practically about the day-to-day in which we live, how we conduct ourselves, how we're speaking in the world. Does that shine light? Do we shine light when we do that? That's what we need to examine. Our speech and our conduct ought to be exposing the darkness. And so maybe you're thinking, okay, I think I follow. (laughs) How does that look practically? What does that look like? Or what is your support for this? Well, turn with me. I want to look at two passages. Turn with me first to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This, I would say, is a fantastic text for this. Um, This is what we read there. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Notice how the wife wins her husband. It is not by going around rebuking everything he is doing. Why didn't you do this? Why don't you do that, right? There's not a nagging that is taking place. There's not a nagging that is taking place. No, instead, we could say she lives as light. Her behavior shows forth and exposes his deeds for what they are. What are her deeds? Well, we're not told specifically, and I don't want to go too far beyond the text. But we can certainly in some sense see that her behavior would have been full of goodness, righteousness, and truth. It's like as if he would see her living her life in a manner that is glorifying God. She is submitting as she should submit. She's reading the Bible. She's testifying to what God is doing in her life. And it just exposes the way that he's walking. Next, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Matthew 5, 14. Here it is where Christ is teaching. And this is what we read. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Here's what we're to do. Because you're light in the world, here's the consequence. Let your light shine before men 
in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice, we are the light, and therefore we're to let our light shine before men. And what is it that shines? It's our good works. It's our good deeds. Our deeds shine forth in a way that exposes and reveals, right? Those around us can essentially see a distinct, marked contrast between their deeds and our deeds. So we have to ask ourselves continually, is our light shining? Because that's how Christ says we're to live. Is our light shining? I think sometimes it's like we, we, don't, we don't think about that. We just go through our day. Not Are we actively being light around us? And so what does it practically look like for us? I think it looks something like what we saw in 1 Peter 3. It is not a direct pointing to every single time the world's conduct is contrary to Scripture. As I said, there are times where that is needed and necessary. But ultimately, what I think it consists of is a Godward life. A Godward life in all that we do, in how we speak and how we act. This is what happens. We testify about what God is doing in our life. We speak of his grace and his mercy towards us, how he provides for us, how he protects us. We abstain from their deeds. And then when they are surprised that we don't run headlong with them into morality and all their other wickedness, we testify as to why. We testify as to why. We tell them, that what God, we tell them what God has commanded and how he has said all men should be living. And so we live in a manner in which the fruit of light is sh- shown forth. And thus we exemplify goodness, righteousness, and truth. In other words, we're benevolent. We're giving of ourselves for others. We're living uprightly so we cannot be maligned. So when we do give the direct rebuke, it's not like, well, I just saw you out doing this, right? Our deeds are going to support those times in which we do give the direct rebuke. And this is how we shine as light into darkness. But light doesn't merely expose darkness. It also transforms darkness. And this is what we see in Paul's next statement. He says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by light for everything that becomes visible is light. Now, this is certainly a complex statement. Um, But what is being described here? Well, simply put, it is the visibility that is brought to those deeds hidden in darkness and then the subsequent transformation of those deeds into light. Just very simply put. <laughs> and so I want to try to develop this a little bit. You see, darkness is the cloak under which these unfruitful deeds fester and thrive. It's when they're hidden. It is the, it's because they can be hidden in the darkness. It is the darkness, um, in the darkness they can be presented as one thing. In the darkness, they can even be presented as light. That's what the world tries to do. That's what we continually see. They try to present their immoral deeds as good and right and having no consequences. And this is why we read earlier that Paul tells them, let no one deceive you with empty words. It is because they present these deeds cloaked in darkness as if they were actually light. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, however, when light comes, these deeds are exposed for what they are. Because all things become visible when exposed by the light. 
And this is necessary. Why? Because there can be no transformation of the deeds until the true nature of those deeds are exposed. You cannot come to Christ and be saved until you understand why do you need to be saved? Why do you need to be saved? Well, it's because your deeds are darkness. Your deeds are evil. And how do you know that? It's because the light exposes that. And so what we see being described here is what many commentators have identified as the process of transformation by which darkness is transformed by the light. Such that those individuals and their deeds become light. This is actually what we even read happening to the Ephesians. In verse 8, they were formerly darkness and now they're light. At some point they had been confronted with the light. And their deeds were exposed, and they saw that, and they repented, and they believed. And they were transformed into light by the light, who is Christ. And it is this process and this function of light that I believe we see in John 3, 19 through 21, if you would like to turn there. Um, John 3, 19. This is what we read. This is what Christ says. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for, that, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, this is what the light does. It exposes and men of darkness hate that. And so what will happen is, this doesn't mean that every time light shines, darkness is transformed. No, what we'll often see happen is that that darkness, in some sense, like, moves away from the light. How many times have you seen where you've confronted somebody, or you're testifying about what God is doing in your life, and they're like, it's almost like immediately, you mention the Bible and what God is doing, it's like, boom, like, I don't even want to see the light. And next thing you know, too, that's like they don't want to interact with you anymore. Why? Because they're moving further from the light. But nonetheless, what we do see happening here is that there, are, there is transformation that takes place by the light. And the, those deeds now manifest themselves. They, they have no fear, and these deeds have been wrought in God. Others came to the light and were transformed by the light. We know this because they practice truth and they're no longer fearful of their deeds being exposed. And so this ultimately leads us to our third and final point, the Christian's luminous beginning. It is as if the whole passage comes to an apex here. Namely, the call of Christ to awaken, to arise from the dead. Paul says, for this reason it says... Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, another complex verse as far as how to break it all down. But this saying quoted by Paul presents a couple different challenges. One challenge is where this quote, this saying stems from. Like, Where does it originate? And another challenge is what is specifically in view here? What is it that Paul is drawing attention to? So first, what is the origination of this saying? This quote starts off in a manner to others in Scripture. For this reason, it says, this was a common introductory formula to introducing uh, something like this. 
However, what makes this a little more challenging is that this quote doesn't have a direct relationship to any one text in Scripture. You're not going to go and you're going to find this elsewhere directly. And so we're not 100% certain as far as where it originates from. And as a result, this has caused many to speculate um, about what it's based upon. And uh, believe it or not, there's actually a lot of recent scholars that would say it doesn't have any uh, connection to the Old Testament, which I just find remarkable. Because, because we know Paul was a student and really a scholar of the Old Testament. So I just, I don't get it. Um, but we know that that's what he did, and, and he's often referenced directly or alluding to the Old Testament in many places. In fact, in regards to this phrase, it says, listen to this, one commentator pointed out that of the 35 times this appears in Paul's writings, 35, only three don't have reference to Scripture. Only three. So, you know, I mean, that would be a case for why this would um, go back to Scripture. But even more than that, what we see in Ephesians itself are references to Isaiah, for example. This is what we see, these various links. Ephesians 2, 13 and 17, linking back to Isaiah 57, 19. Ephesians 4.30 to Isaiah 63.10. Ephesians 6.14.15 and 17 to Isaiah 59.17. And therefore, it shouldn't be surprising if this were the case here. I use the word if because, again, we're not 100% certain on this. We can't be dogmatic on it, per se. Uh, however, it is my position that this saying is based on Old Testament Scripture, that Paul is pulling from the Old Testament. And there are a number of Scriptures that can be used in which we see this simil the similar language of awaken, arise, appear, or shine, so on and so forth. But I want to turn your attention to one passage out of Isaiah. Isaiah 61 through two, 1 and 2. Isaiah 61 and 2. This is what we read arise shine for your light has come i mean all of those things it's like are we reading ephesians or are we reading isaiah <laughs> and the glory of the lord has risen upon you for behold darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples but the lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you upon you upon you Think about, that's what, I mean, I'm, Ephesians, I just got to turn there because I don't have it actually referenced here, but. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You see, it's as if Paul took this passage, I'm not saying it's this exact one, but there's such a connection here. It's as if he took this and he adapted it. How? Because Lord is changed to Christ. Appear is changed, almost heightened in a sense to shine, a more intense shining upon you. And so there are certainly strong connections here to our passage. And I should note this at least, there is one area of consensus on this text. It is that many agree that this is some type of early Christian hymn that was sung. 
So regardless of what this has reference to, it seems many agree that this is hymnic in nature. And so this actually leads us to the second issue. The second issue. What is specifically in view? And it really kind of boils down to two primary events. Is it one's baptism or is it one's conversion? This is important because we're now getting to what Paul is pointing them to. Now, the dominant scholarly view is that this refers to the believer's baptism. They say that what was happening here in this hymn is the the believers were being called to remember their baptism, the imagery of dying and rising from the dead in Christ, and the various promises associated with that. However, I actually break from the dominant view. Um, I go, I side really with the lesser held view, namely that what Paul is pointing the Ephesian church to is not their baptism, but rather he is pointing them all the way back to the beginning. Now, I understand in the early church, oftentimes it was like belief, baptism. We tend to see like belief and then like, you know, a few months later you're baptized. So there's, you know, but I think ultimately what it's pointing all the way back to is the beginning He is pointing them to their conversion, their luminous beginning in which Christ first shined upon them. The language of this saying is certainly directed to non-believers. It's filled with imperatives. And these Ephesian believers were at one point non-believers. And so Paul is pointing them back to the beginning. They were to remember when they were unbelievers. And they were summoned to awaken, summoned to rise from the dead. They remember when Christ first shined upon them. And if this is the case, again, ultimately, we're not 100% sure, but if this is the case, here is what we have. Paul using an inclusio. Now, what is an inclusio? It's a term that is used to refer to statements that are made at the beginning and ending of a paragraph or a, or a, or a thought. And so what ends up happening is you kind of have bookends on a thought. You start here, you got something here, and you end here, and you sandwich it. And I think this is what we see here. He begins by reminding them of their conversion, that they have been transformed in and are now light in Christ. That's verse 8. And he ends by reminding them of their conversion once again, that Christ has called them to awaken and to rise from the dead, that Christ has shone upon them and sandwiched right in the middle of this is the fruit of, that should result from their conversion. Namely, that they should exhibit the fruit of light, thereby exposing rather than participating in the deeds of darkness. And interestingly enough, it is this reminder of their conversion that then leads to the next section that follows. We're not touching that, but ultimately of how they're to walk in the world among the body and among the family. You've been converted. Here's how you live as light. And it actually applies to all areas of your life. And so I end with what I said earlier. It's good and even necessary to think upon what we once were, but now are. To think about our conversion. We, too, had a luminous beginning. We were made light. Light shone into our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we all know this verse. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We don't have time to break this passage down, but just a couple things to note. 
And speaking about the light, the one who is shown in our hearts, Paul points back to creation. Again, this is not a direct quote, but for the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is likely a reference to let there be light. And so in creation, there is a dispelling of darkness that we could almost say is typological of salvation in which light shines into our hearts and dispels darkness. That light, of course, being Christ. And then if we think John chapter 1 and how it starts off with in the beginning, and then we subsequently read of the light who has come into the world. Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. This speaks qualitatively that true life is found in the light, in Christ. Verse 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This light shined the moment Christ was born. Here is the light that has appeared, and it confronts the darkness. And it is this light, it is this one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have been gloriously illumined. We have been made light in Christ. And so we too need to remember this luminous beginning. We too need to think upon our conversion. This is nothing new. This call to think upon our conversion is nothing new. Just think of in the Old Testament. What is the typological picture in the Old Testament of salvation? The Exodus. Exodus 13.3 says this. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. We too were brought out of, in a sense, the land of slavery, the land of bondage, bondage to darkness. And so we too need to remember that we were brought out. It is no different for us. Christ has done a great work. We have been brought out with a powerful hand. We have been illumined by a glorious light and thus made light. And may we walk in the reality of this. May we let the remembrance of our conversion push us on to bear the fruit of light in a world of darkness. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it's, it is amazing. No man could have written this. And Lord, may your word search us. May your spirit search us to examine our deeds and, and allow us to contemplate our conversion oh may we never forget our conversion and that work in which you shone into our heart you exposed us for what we were we were haters of god we were lovers of sin oh but christ you came you gave yourself you lived perfectly and you gave yourself as a sacrifice for sin oh would we not live in the sin that you saved us from you have called us out of bondage. And you've called us into your marvelous light. Oh, help us to live as we ought to live. In Jesus' name, amen.